Oh my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that escaped convict, Ironjaw, that rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's, he's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. That is Blank is the killer. Hello, all you cool kids. You are listening to Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast about fresh-to-me films and other random spooky topics. Last episode, I accidentally said that this would be released on November 3rd, when it's actually December now. I decided to watch some Thanksgiving-themed movies for this episode to try and get into the holiday spirit. I realized that I probably should have done this for the last episode to prepare you, the listener, for the festivities. My apologies for dropping the ball on that one. Good news is, there are actually some good Thanksgiving horror movies, so let's throw up words about them now. Number 1. Blood Rage, a.k.a. Nightmare at Shadow Woods, a.k.a. Slasher, 1987, directed by John Grismer. Terry and Todd are twins. We start off with them as young boys. Terry murders a random guy in a drive-in and frames Todd. Todd doesn't protest due to shock until years later. We get to the present. Todd escapes the psych ward he's been in. When Terry hears the news, he starts killing again. Terry kills a bunch of people and is finally killed by his mother, who thinks she is killing Todd. Realizing that she killed Terry, she kills herself since she for some reason can't come to terms with Todd being innocent all along. Terry and his mom are the killers. I absolutely love the gore effects in this movie. They were campy and over the top to the perfect degree. The gore makes even a simple machete stab look incredible and unique with awesome spurts of blood. It's fun and great, but not completely cartoonish like some gore in Japanese movies like Machine Girl. That's not to say that I don't love the ridiculous Japanese gore movies. In Blood Rage, there is a scene where a doctor is cut in half and her top half remains alive and continues screaming in a completely comedic way. The whole film is filled with hilarious fun. Something I found interesting was the mother's reactions. I feel like she actually acts and does things that a person in shock would do. Sure, she does a lot of odd things, but it all seems to make sense given the circumstances. It's not a perfect representation of someone in shock, but compared to most movies, I really appreciated it. I love when she just starts vacuuming with a huge glass of wine. The acting from Louise Lasser, who plays the mother, was pretty good. She was probably bad, but compared to everyone else in this movie, she seemed great. The rest of the cast's acting was absolutely horrendous, which only amplifies the comedy. Terry must be a never-nude because he takes a shower to wash some blood off himself while wearing underwear. We barely even see the waistband, which makes me think we were only supposed to see the top half of his body. Just in case you forget that the movie is set during Thanksgiving, it reminds you on multiple occasions that blood may or may not be cranberry sauce. 
I swear, cranberry sauce is brought up at least four times, if not more. The only thing that you'll hear more than cranberry sauce is a terrible kick drum that is used throughout the movie to remind you how lazy the person in charge of the score was. This was originally released as a made-for-TV movie and was originally titled Nightmare at Shadow Woods. It was heavily edited because television. So, it was later released in its full gory, I mean glory, as Blood Rage. Sam Raimi's brother Ted makes a cameo as a bathroom condom salesman. Maureen Cantor, the film's producer, also acted in it due to the original choice not showing up. She plays the doctor that is hilariously cut in half. The movie was written by Academy Award winner Bruce Joel Rubin. He got the Oscar for Best Original Screenplay for the movie Ghost. He also had a hand in writing Jacob's Ladder, which I need to check out at some point. Blood Rage is funny, wonderfully gory, and set during Thanksgiving. I highly recommend it, and this will probably be the movie I watch every Thanksgiving moving forward. Make sure that you find the Blood Rage version when looking for it, or you'll end up watching a soulless made-for-TV edit. Number 2, The Fog, 1980, directed by John Carpenter. Weird paranormal occurrences start to happen from midnight to 1am in a small town. A strange fog is rolling in and leaving bodies in its wake. A dark secret of a leper community massacre is revealed. The victims are back and ghostlier than ever. The fog rolls in and people start dying. Its inhabitants want back the gold that was stolen from them. And revenge. They are given back their gold and the haunting ceases. A past hate of lepers and the ghosts of wrongfully murdered lepers in the fog are the killers. The fog, more like the forgettable, am I right? I was pretty hyped up for this movie. You have Jamie Lee Curtis, John Carpenter, and a bloodthirsty ghost crew appearing in the fog? Sounds great. Unfortunately, nothing that happens throughout the entire movie is very memorable. The designs for the ghost crew members are bland and generic. Just because they are obscured by the fog for most of the movie doesn't mean effort shouldn't have been put into their design. They all look like they're wearing cheap zombie pirate costumes from a discount pile located in the back of a spirit Halloween store. The way the faces look are also terrible and barely distinguishable. If you had to pick one of the ghosts out of a lineup where they didn't have their weapons, you would have no way of telling them apart. The glowing red eyes are cool, but they do not make up for the lackluster designs. The music in this movie is also incredibly uninspired. Carpenter scores this film, and it feels like he took some stuff that he had left over from Halloween and called it a day. It's a shame because the score for Halloween is so iconic, and what we get here just seems to be the bad leftovers. None of the kills in this movie stand out besides one sailor getting his eyes stabbed. The kill was brutal and intense, even though it's shown in a way where you don't get to fully see what happens. Most of the other kills go as follows. Person gets stabbed by a hook and dies. That's it. None of the hook kills impress me. I want to emphasize here that I don't think all kills need to be gory and crazy, but these hook kills feel especially bland. I would have liked at least one kill where you see only fog and an arm holding a hook shoots out, hooks a victim, and then pulls them back into the fog. All of the activity in this movie happens during the witching hour between midnight and 1am. I had always thought the witching hour was 3am to 4am. This appears to be true in the olden times in Europe, but it looks like in more modern times it is actually midnight to 1 or 2am. 
If I was going to do any powerful black magic, I would still wait for 3am though. Jamie Lee Curtis was in this movie fresh from Halloween. Her character doesn't really do anything. You could completely remove her character and the plot would not be affected at all. She's not bad in this, but the character she was given is absolutely pointless. Everyone else's acting was decent. All of the characters are pretty boring, and no one really has an actual character arc or any meaningful development. I really don't have much left to say about the movie. I do need to watch some more Carpenter stuff soon, since this film left a bad taste in my mouth, and honestly, I haven't seen enough of his stuff yet. Carpenter himself didn't seem to like the film much either, since his opinion of it was allegedly a big reason why he allowed the 2005 remake to be made which I haven't seen and don't really have any desire to. Skip this movie. If you need a released in the year 1980 horror movie that stars Jamie Lee Curtis, watch Prom Night. If you want some fantastic Carpenter, watch The Thing. Number 3, Christie, 2014, directed by Ollie Blackburn. A girl is murdered by a group of people in the woods. We're introduced to a strange satanic internet cult. At a university, a student named Justine ends up being the only student to stay on campus during the Thanksgiving break. She tries to be nice to a weird girl in a convenience store, which makes the weird girl and her cult friends decide to hunt Justine. The cult comes to the campus and kills whoever appears while trying to get Justine. Justine evades the cult and hides for a while before turning the tide and killing them all. Justine and Dark Web Satanists are the killers. The hunted becomes the hunter. This is something I have always enjoyed in horror movies. I guess you still classify this as that type of movie, even though none of the original cult killers actually seem to realize they are being hunted. This is one of those movies where everything shown leading up to the killer's arrival comes back around. The babysitter did the same exact thing by having all of that main character's brought up fears be conquered. Justine is shown washing dishes. Her knowledge of the back of the kitchen area helps her escape the hunters. Her swimming skills allow her to evade the hunters again, which, let me say, hiding underwater was a really stupid idea. And it also uh, aids her in taking one down. She learns about a chemical reaction that catches fire. When I saw this, I instantly knew it would be Chekhov's chemical reaction. She just happens to locate all the necessary components for this reaction in a janitorial closet in the same building as the swimming pool. I don't hate when movies do this, and I think it can be pretty fun to see things come back, but the chemical reaction coming together so easily was a bit ridiculous. I would have preferred if Justine had gotten the necessary items to pull that off from a science classroom or something. Are there parts in this movie where you were screaming to yourself, don't do that, or why didn't you do this? Yep. But I feel like most horror movies are going to have that. Why didn't she have a cell phone on her? Why didn't she lock her door? Why did she risk going on the hunt when she could have probably just escaped without taking anyone out? There are more questions, but none of those really bothered me too much. Well, besides her not locking any doors, and they do technically show one locked door being bashed down, but still... There is a part in the movie where Justine jumps from a roof and the only thing that slows her fall are some tree branches. She then pops right up and jogs off with a slight limp. That was absolutely ridiculous and unnecessary since the fall looked like it was from at least three stories up. The kills in this movie are fun and absurd for the most part. 
Justine drowns a dude by tackling him into a pool, smacks another guy with a quickly constructed spiked bat, and then lights a girl on fire like some kind of science wizard. Gore isn't really prevalent in this. It seems like if the film would have been released theatrically in the United States, it would have gotten a PG-13 rating. It had a theatrical release in Europe, but ended up getting released on the Lifetime Network before being put on Netflix in the U.S., some ridiculous gore would have been nice, but my enjoyment of the movie wasn't affected by its exclusion. Something completely horrible and disgusting did happen in this movie that I need to talk about. Justine is friends with the college security guard. She tells him she's going to the convenience store and asks if he wants anything. He says he'd like a Mountain Dew and some pumpkin pie. At the convenience store, Justine grabs a Mountain Dew off a non-refrigerated shelf. What kind of a monster brings their friend a warm soda? Cold, Justine. Real cold. Something I really enjoyed was the tense atmosphere that was created with the tight dorm hallways and faulty lighting. The way it was shot made everything feel incredibly claustrophobic and creepy. The idea of the dark web Satanists was pretty stupid and cheesy, but I did appreciate their simplistic designs with creepy masks made of foil. Their motive was incredibly dumb though. They kill people they call Christy. Christy is Latin for follower of God. Justine offers to buy the hunter girl sunglasses, which makes her automatically assume she's a Christian, even though Justine is kind of a jerk about it. The worst motive for a killer. No motive at all would have been better than what we got. The cult kids also text like idiots, using numbers instead of letters and whatnot, which I hate. But hey, people that are going to kill others for no reason probably don't care about texting etiquette. I thought the acting was pretty good in this. Haley Bennett was great as Justine. I really like the way it was shot, sans some jarring shots of red trees shown when Justine is driving to and from the convenience store. I feel like they wanted those shots to make the audience feel disoriented, but I don't think they fit. One last thing that bothered me at the end of the movie, after Justine comes out victorious, she decides her name is Christy now. Come on, Justine. Even though this movie takes place over Thanksgiving break, it doesn't actually feel like a Thanksgiving movie, so I can't recommend it as a true Thanksgiving horror movie. That being said, I'd recommend giving this a watch if you're a fan of the victim becoming the killer. It's a fun movie that kept my interest throughout. Number 4, Home Sweet Home, 1981, directed by Nettie Pena. A psycho that's hopped up on PCP escapes from an insane asylum. He kills multiple people and ends up at a ranch on Thanksgiving. There, he kills all of the Thanksgiving guests except a final girl and child before being shot up by two police officers. The movie ends with the psycho opening his eyes. The escaped lunatic that's hopped up on PCP is the killer. This movie has a pretty similar plot to Blood Rage and was released much earlier. Too bad that its execution is abysmal. There are multiple scenes that take place at night around the ranch house the story is set out. When the characters are outside in the dark, it is almost impossible to make out what's going on. There were several sequences where all I could do was listen to the characters while staring at a black screen. This is one of the first films where I feel the editing was bad enough to actually comment on. There are multiple cuts from one character saying a line, then jumping to another that responds with strange timing or with a response that doesn't make any sense in the context. The acting in this one is especially bad, 
and not in the hammed up, campy way that makes most of these types of movies more fun. I can't think of any character that was acted well. There is a character named Mistake that runs around with a guitar and portable amp, all the while sporting white face paint. He's incredibly annoying in the best way, and the only character that sticks out at all. Multiple vehicles break down for plot convenience throughout the film. The psycho knocks out the power by flipping a breaker switch, and the homeowner decides to turn on a generator to power the lights instead of checking the breaker. The generator powers everything but a TV in order for there to be a reason why two characters are missing later on because of course these two guys are going to the bar for hours on Thanksgiving to watch a football game because the TV doesn't work even though the electricity's back on and that was the reason it stopped working. I did like the idea of having the killer high on PCP, since that can be seen as the reason why pain wasn't really slowing him down. The psycho gets stabbed in the back and keeps actively trying to murder people. He is then shot by cops multiple times and shown to open his eyes right before the movie ends. PCP is one hell of a drug. I was checking the time while watching this. It drags on and none of the kills are really satisfying. Besides one where the ranch owner is trying to steal a battery from the car the killer was using, which gives the killer an opportunity to jump on the hood with a flying elbow drop, crushing the rancher and killing him. That kill made me laugh out loud. All of the other kills and gore effects in the film were boring and poorly executed. In the final scene of the film, the same recorded scream is used six times in two minutes. Why do they decide to play the scream back to back multiple times when it is completely obvious that it is the exact same one? No idea. Skip this garbage and watch Blood Rage. Number 5. Bedeviled, 2016, directed by The Vang Brothers. An 18-year-old girl is found dead due to a heart attack. Her friends receive an app invite from her post-mortem. The app is basically Siri mixed with Alexa on steroids. The app begins killing off the group of friends one by one, scaring them to death. One of the characters named Cody figures out a way to uninstall the app. He gets this method to work for one of the girls, Alice, but unfortunately is unable to save himself with the same technique. Once the app is deleted, Alice is saved. She is shown FaceTiming her mom from college. Her mom has downloaded the app. Mr. Bedazzle, I mean Mr. Bedevil, is the killer. My brother watched the movie and told me to look into it. I was originally going to have him do a 30 seconds to live segment, but decided to go ahead and have a discussion with him about the film instead, since he gave it a more in-depth second and even third watching. That's a lot of dedication given to this movie. So without further ado, here is the brand new segment, Baker Bros Banter. So uh, the movie was Bedeviled? Yes. Which is incredibly close to bedazzled, in my opinion. <laughs> um, but allegedly, uh, bedeviled is an actual word. Um, it's basically um, a word for something that brings you pain over time and continuously. So I guess it makes sense. Huh. Yeah, and so, so with that, you'd think that these kids wouldn't want to download an app called Mr. Bedevil. Um, but hey, they did. Because ghost apps. And so, so what yeah. were your initial uh, impressions on it? Well, other than uh, its extreme predictability, I found it to be really unoriginal as well. 
<laughs> like even down to the symbol that they use to describe Mr. Bedevil, which is the V in the circle, just seems a lot like the symbol from V for Vendetta. Mm-hmm. But they've got everything that's just cliche. They've got scary clowns. They've got discount ring girl, um, teddy bears. <laughs> yeah, they they did not bust out anything original. I thought the the character of Mr. Bedevil himself uh, was really Slenderman-esque. And I'm like, oh, oh we're doing yeah. that still? Uh, we're still doing the Slenderman thing? One thing that I noticed is that all the kills were incredibly boring because the, all the kids died of fright. Yeah. And uh, I, I don't know about you, but I thought that was boring. Like, I didn't even care when they died because it's like, oh, they they died of fright. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was really dumb. And then they had that one reveal for the uh, for the main character's boyfriend where she goes up to him. He's sitting in the chair with the app out. You see the top of his head, and it seems like she saw something really scary, but we don't know what it is. So all that suspense was just kind of busted there. Yeah, you don't even get to see that, and it was it was really weird. Um, speaking of, of that kid, the final girl's uh, boyfriend, I think his name was... No idea, I can't remember. Do you Gavin. Know? Gavin? So Gavin's afraid of clowns, right? Yeah. And um, he goes into like the house, and so when he's going to die... He just sees a bunch of clowns, and I, I I just think one of those clowns you had like the uh, the redheaded clown. I don't know if you noticed, but that looked like oh, a yeah. hot clown. Yeah. And, and I was like, Gavin, why are you afraid of this hot clown? Yeah, come on, man. <laughs> the whole plot was dumb. Everything was dumb. Everything's bad. <laughs> yeah. Well, when your whole plot is a uh, haunted app, you know what are you gonna expect? Oh yeah, completely trying to think if i have anything good to say about the movie and i, I don't oh, think man. i he, do <laughs> even with the explanation that they had when they went and uh tried to find their old teacher who was the original source of the app you know and he's covered in the sheet and all that they couldn't help but do the listen to the exposition on the real to real cliche mm-hmm and i i felt that that might have been like a small nod to uh evil dead um but the movie probably wasn't thinking on that level. Yeah. <laughs> they probably didn't mean to do that on purpose. There's also a moment in the movie uh, where the Mr. Bedevil talks for a main character whose name is Alice. And he goes, Alice, sweet Alice. Which is an uh, old slasher movie um, that was like one of Brooke Shields' first movies. Where she's like the first victim and dies super early. But that is a movie and they may have been making a call out to it. But given the rest of the film... I don't think they love horror movies or care about them at all. <laughs> I don't know. They know enough to rip off a bunch of them, so I could totally see them putting references to other ones like Alice, Sweet Alice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it is possible that they were doing that. It's just like they didn't take anything from any of those movies and be like, hey, let's make it better. Hey, let's let's be interesting. Let's make things that stand out. It just feels like it's a bunch of crap from other movies. Like there was like that uh, red balloon, and it's like, oh cool, you you guys saw the it trailer when when you were making <laughs> your movie. <laughs> like uh, that's what it really felt like. Can we talk about the the reveals for the monsters when they're about to kill the kids? Yeah, where they just have the most god awful CGI eyes that are supposed to be scary, but it's just funny. Yeah, especially the... <laughs> with the teddy bear and the ring girl. The ring girl looks like she's. 
like having problems mentally or something at that point. Yeah, they got they got those CGIs that were really bad. <laughs> hey. uh, <laughs> um, yeah, like I felt like if they didn't do that, it would have been better. <laughs> like they didn't even need to have the the eyes at all. Which brings me to something too is they they had that uh, CGI thing that a lot of films like these days where they make the mouth really big and it looks really. Stupid. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, why yeah. do we keep doing that? <laughs> I don't know. Apparently big mouths are scary. I guess so. Like, uh, I mean, the production quality on, on in the CGI in I Am Legend was pretty scary. Like, man, it was just so bad. And I think they were <laughs> one of the front runners for making that trend a thing. But with it, like, so it wasn't scary. I, I, would you say it was scary <laughs> at all? Maybe if I've never seen a scary movie before, but... Everything was so telegraphed, it was impossible to get scared by the scares. Yeah, and, and so they, they do, like, the typical formula of, like, a kind of a jump scare. But even when they did these jump scares, you were so ready for these jump scares that they didn't work. Um, and I'm, I'm not a fan of those at all at any time. So yeah. I, I feel like it was trying to be this horror movie or this comedy. And I don't think it worked as a comedy, intentionally, at least, in any sense. Do you think no. do you think anything was like oh but they meant for this to be funny? I mean, there were a couple moments where they there was humor, like uh when uh Dan and uh oh what's her name? Uh well Dan and his girlfriend they're uh you know, they're making their sex tape and she's talking uh all Shakespearean. That was kind of humorous, but it got old real quick. Mhm. Yeah, I I and and about that, it's like Dan you didn't even tell this girl who's, uh, it doesn't seem like they were officially together because that's what it sounded like when he talked to his friends. It's like, but you're going to record you guys having sex without telling her. Like, that's sleazeball yeah, move, Dan. That, that's just messed up. And then he gets the, you know, just desserts with that all over uh, Instagram. And Yeah. Yeah. Oh, there was that one moment when, uh, when uh, Cody, he's running out of the parking garage and he decks that homeless dude and the homeless dude thinks he's mugging him. That was pretty yeah, good. That, I'll give him that. That was pretty good. Like, I remember um, there's like a, a part in the movie um, where he's, he's like, this is not a prank, Dan. And so I just wanted him to say, this is not a prank, Dan. I punched a homeless guy. <laughs> like, Don't sneak up on a brother. It's like the homeless dude didn't sneak up. He was there the whole time. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I found Cody's character to be a little standoffish too. Like when he first in that the first part of that scene, he starts whistling Chopin, and all the old woman does is recognize that and mention it. And he goes into this whole tirade about, um, "I have to whistle Chopin because it makes me feel safer, but I'm afraid of you little old white ladies with your mace and your police with your guns." It's like, chill out, dude. Yeah, it did seem a little weird, especially like. I know they set up the scene where, like, that, that old lady's, like, grabbing her purse when she sees him a little closer. But then, like, when she opens up, he, like, just goes on the attack. And it's like, oh, like, you could have a moment where, like, you you sh you change the, the ideals of this lady. But instead, like, you get, like, real aggressive with her. And I don't know. It's, it, it felt weird. It, yeah. I don't know. It's, it, it was a, it's, it's a message that could have been put across uh in a better way and it's it's something that's important um but the way they did it just did not work 
And let's talk about that uh, police detective when uh, they try to go to the police and he just starts uh, ranting about drugs. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> they they linger on him for a bit, but he doesn't show any change, like, becoming unpossessed or anything. He's just still possessed, or maybe he never was possessed, and he's just a very opinionated police officer. Yeah, he does, he does get the bow tie eventually, but, like, it's like... What does this scene serve? <laughs> like, what is the point? Um, I I think they could have completely taken that out because it just didn't make any sense. And so yeah. that also reminded me of like just any time that that group was together, they're supposed to be these friends, and they felt like nobody liked each other. They were all reading these lines like terribly. The acting is like horrendous throughout. I thought. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, and there's that one that one moment where. Uh... Gavin tries to crush his cell phone, and it just repairs itself. <laughs> yeah, I was like, dude, sweet, you have an unbreakable cell phone. This is great. <laughs> yeah, market that. You'll make bank. It's like, hey, everybody, download this app. You might die, but your cell phone will be great. <laughs> <laughs> um, there was one thing that I thought was funny. Um, I know that they probably wanted the, the, the teddy bear to be funny when it was, like, running, but I yeah. didn't find that very funny. But, like, the grandma character I thought was hilarious. Yeah, the grandma was funny. Uh, did you ever Wait. listen to any um, King Diamond at all? Uh, a long time ago. He has like a, a like a whole album where it's about his grandma coming back and like that she's awful. And so the whole time this grandma's running around, I'm just thinking about King Diamond, and I'm like, <laughs> if you if you take anything away from this movie so far in our discussion, go listen to King Diamond. King Diamond is great. <laughs> oh yeah. But uh, man, like. That was the only part where I was like, "Man, this is this is funny." <laughs> um, I wanted to like uh, the design of the Mister Bedevil guy a little bit. Like, I thought the hands could have been cool, but a lot of the times they just look like they got some like spiders from a Halloween store. You know, those like really crappy. Yeah, ones. yeah. And then just were like, "Hey, they're hands now." <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh. so you have that whole scene where they're in like the warehouse district or whatever. And um, they're on the walkie-talkies, and they're all talking about Starbucks for, like, f five minutes. <laughs> it's like, was that product placement or something? Probably. <laughs> it's like, these kids love Starbucks. They have, like, these intricate orders. And I'm like, man, just give me some cold brew. Just cold brew. I'm fine. Maybe they're just trying to relate to the kids nowadays. I mean, what do kids like nowadays? They like the pop music, and they like the Starbucks. Yeah, they do love that. And, they, and they, I guess they also love uh, midget porn, which was brought up. Oh, yeah. Um, I feel like this movie had, like, a bunch of parts where there were random sex sounds for no reason. Yeah, yeah. Every time <laughs> Gavin was involved in it, you know, they first did the uh, thing where they're tricking him with the screamer, and it was mm -hmm. just the, the hypno-spiral with the moaning in the background with the really shitty yeah. jumps here. And it's like, screamers, like, I don't think that, is that a thing anymore? Um, I remember this, like, way back... Um, like, uh, like, what's wrong with this room? <laughs> yeah, how how are you going to be their age and be like, oh, this this is totally isn't a screamer? I would have been like, first thing, like, I'm not falling for that. Like, come on, how old are we? Yeah, but come on. I'm trying to rack my brain here, and I don't got I don't got anything for this. <laughs> yeah, says a lot about it, honestly. <laughs> yeah, I I pretty much um, watched it, uh, got through it. I really wish there would have been some like, I don't know interesting kills or something something to like keep me into the end of the show because it it would have gotten an r rating right um 
because it had the the language i think so like where was everything yeah. else like why don't we have the people like gruesomely murdered even if they only get gruesomely murdered in their head and they've actually died of fear like i don't know do that or something like and even then there's the whole logical uh dilemma with so we have all these high school students dropping from heart attacks they're all related to each other in some way yet the police don't think that's suspicious at all oh yeah that's true uh you know kids these days their their speed i guess is making them have heart attacks <laughs> um and like so you're a group of friends and you know this thing's coming after y'all why are you not all hanging out together because like your parents are completely absent for the most part so, like, why are you guys just not having, like, a huge slumber party to, like, watch each other's backs? Yeah, like, a lot of movies know to do that. Uh, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street, It Follows. It's just logical. Yeah, I think, now that I think about it, I feel like this, um, this is kind of like a hybrid of Nightmare on Elm Street and uh, It Follows. And I would definitely say, stay away from Bedeviled and just go watch those. Yeah, they're way better. Any any closing thoughts on Bedeviled? Um, I wasted too much time of my life watching it. And there you have it. A brotherly discussion about a movie neither of us recommend. Thank you, Jared, for joining me there. We might be doing more of these in the future. If anyone is interested in doing something similar, let me know. Now, back to the movies. Number 6. Blood Freak, 1972. Directed by Brad F. Grinter and Steve Hawks. A veteran named Herschel ends up at a house with Bible freaks and druggies. He needs a job, so he goes to work at a turkey farm for some scientists. There, he is offered drugs and money to eat some chemically altered turkey. After eating the turkey, his head turns into a turkey head. Since he is now a drug fiend due to smoking some bad stuff earlier on, he goes around killing high people for their tasty drug blood. Eventually, he is cornered by some dudes that are looking for him who chop his head off. But wait, he was never a turkey-headed killer. He was just having some crazy drug-fueled hallucination. No one is the killer. I don't know about everyone else, but boy oh boy do I love when all the exciting events of a movie were only a drug-fueled hallucination. Who am I kidding? It Was All a Dream is one of the worst plot twists of all time, if not the absolute worst. There is no point for all the good events of this film to have been a hallucination, unless this movie is actually trying to be a PSA about God's love and the dangers of drugs and chemicals. I thought it was a parody in that sense, since we have a strange old man, who just so happens to be the director, Brad F. Grinter, step in and give us his wisdom throughout the movie, and in an entirely hilarious manner, especially at the end, when he is talking about the dangers of chemicals while smoking a cigarette and coughing. I'm pretty sure this was supposed to be a comedy, and not an actual come-to-Jesus movie. This is probably the most poorly made movie I have watched for the podcast so far. The editing is so bad, it makes Home Sweet Home look well put together. A lot of cuts don't make any sense. The line reads and reactions of the characters are horrendous. The cast was compromised of acting students from Grinter's acting class. I hope that didn't cost those students too much. The gore looks completely fake, which is funny. I'd say all of these shortcomings are the reason why the movie is any fun to watch at all. 
The odd cuts made me laugh out loud a bunch of times. Multiple times, there would be a random cut to someone's face where they would just give any reaction they could for no reason. There are a ton of instances where a line is delivered and the person saying the line pauses to try and remember what they were supposed to say before continuing. I have brought up movies reusing screams in the past. A little earlier in this episode, I went in on Home Sweet Home for it. But wow, this movie literally uses the same scream over and over. There are two scenes with two different girls where a four-ish second scream is just played back to back on repeat. Just the same clip over and over. This movie is bad. It's real bad. I would like to recommend it for how bad it is, but it also has some of the worst pacing I have ever witnessed. There are multiple scenes that serve no purpose, but drag on far longer than needed. I think there is probably about seven minutes of the main character just smoking. Here's a warning. This movie has an actual scene where a turkey gets its head cut off and flails around until it dies in an incredibly unnecessary, graphic, and drawn-out scene. If you decide to watch this and understandably don't want to see an actual turkey death, you can close your eyes when you see two guys sneak up on our turkey-headed lead with a machete. Then just reopen your peepers when you hear people talking again. If you can handle terrible pacing, I might recommend checking this out with a group of friends. It definitely falls into the, it's so bad it has a couple of moments that are worth viewing camp, but is way longer than it needs to be. Number 7. Betrayal at House on the Hill, 2004. Designed by Bruce Glasgow. This game is about you and a ragtag group of your friends taking on some horror stereotype personas like strange old man, athletic dude, and annoying kid while venturing through a house that is different every time you play until one of you becomes the haunt. The way the game works is you each take turns exploring the house by adding new tiles to a floor layout. There are three floors, the basement, upstairs, and ground floor that are all interconnected. While exploring, you'll find items that'll help you, and strange events will occur that can be blessings or curses. You may even find a dog or girl while working your way through the creepy abode. Every time you reveal an omen on a new tile, which is depicted by a little picture of a raven, you have to roll at the end of your turn and try to beat a specific number that continues to rise as you wander around. If you fail to beat the number, the haunt starts. What does this mean exactly? One of your friends, most of the time, is now against you and some sort of terrible monster. They separate themselves from the group to learn their new powers, while everyone else works on a plan to take them down. There are 50 different haunts you can experience, so there is a lot of replayability. I've been playing this game with a couple groups so far. I haven't dove in too incredibly deep just yet, but so far find it to be a very fun game. I'd say what makes the game fun isn't about whether you win or lose, but the stories that you get to create and be a part of with your friends. One time I was a frail old man that got stuck in a spider web for a hilarious amount of time before becoming a martyr to provide the rest of my crew enough time to defeat an ancient evil. Another time we had some Scooby-Doo shenanigans where a dog ran through the house to get a specific item needed to foil the evil haunt's plans. In another game, a tentacle monster ensnared our group one by one, finally capturing the last surviving member of Team Good right before they had a chance to destroy the monster's brain. This game is not for everyone, though. If you are someone that gets competitive, you might want to stay away from this. Sure, there are 50 haunts, which is awesome, 
but having 50 haunts means there are some huge balancing issues. Some of the scenarios we played made it seem impossible for the haunt or the victims to win due to the victory conditions provided. I personally didn't have a problem with this since I feel the game is more of a cooperative storytelling game and not a game I play to show everyone I'm the best at killing or being a monster. That would be King of Tokyo. If you're interested in some quick, spooky fun with friends, I'd recommend checking out Betrayal at House on the Hill. It won the 2004 Gamer's Choice Award for Best Board Game. It does have an absolutely terrible name, though. I get that it's making a reference to House on Haunted Hill, but it does not roll off the tongue at all. Check out Betrayal, or the more D&D-themed edition, Betrayal at Baldur's Gate. Another cranberry sauce-filled episode of Blank is the Killer. I hope you had some fun hearing about killers on Turkey Day and a hallucination about a killer with a turkey head. I think I'll continue covering holiday content in the next episode since tis the season. I got a few wintertime horror movies already in mind and hope that I can recommend something for you to watch with your families to terrify your grandparents. I feel like the audio may sound a little strange on this one, so if you think the quality dropped, excluding the Baker Bros banter segment, please let me know so I can try to fix it. I want this to be the best listening experience it can be for you, the listener, and I might just be paranoid. Shoutouts to Sticker Fridge for hosting the podcast as always. Brian talks about liking the Bloody Reuben commentary track on their newest Fam Films episode about Super Troopers. Binge their podcasts and video content at StickerFridge.com, the YouTubes, and iTunes. The next time I can cast the blank is the killer spell is December 17th. Damn, these cooldowns are harsh. Talk to you then.